Amen. Thank you, God, that you have revealed yourself in a name, that you have taken all of human history, biblical history, salvation history, and funneled down the revelation of who you are into a name, Jesus Christ, the name given under heaven by which we must be saved. But because you've given us this name, we can be saved. You've made yourself universally accessible in Jesus. To all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, you say. So I pray that, Lord, as we exalt your name by looking in your word, that you would draw all people to yourself, that you would help people put down their defenses, that you would break hard hearts, you would soften them to your voice. Make us receptive to what you have to say to each of us today in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning, uh, this morning we're going to go to a couple funerals with Jesus. Uh, actually, two funerals, and we're going to go to them at the same time uh, so that we can learn a lesson from these two men. How would you like if Jesus used your funeral to teach the world a lesson from your life? Because that's what he does today. And luckily for us that we're just guests today. So uh, we're, off, we're, off the, uh, we're off the hook. So unless maybe Jesus has something he wants to say to us, of course. Um, but but at these, these funerals that we're attending today, they couldn't be drastically more different. They couldn't represent two lives more polar opposite. One man's rich, the other poor. One man, a respected figure in the community, the other lives in abject poverty, living off the charity of others, having been overtaken by a skin-rotting disease left to lie day and night in the dirt open wounds on all sides. The other, the rich man, lived at a great remove from all that filth and squalor and suffering, securely behind his gated home, living and working in the kinds of places he could drag his long purple robe without having to worry about it getting dirty. And finally, the poor man, after countless years of dying finally died in a pool of his own bodily excretions. The other, uh, oh, and because he's contagious as a corpse, no one wants to touch his body, so they leave him to the dogs, and that's his funeral. Incidentally, on the same day, a rich man, this rich man, not long after giving a toast, I imagine, to Herod's temple, to Caiaphas and the priesthood, to Israel and God's blessing on my household, which is proven by the fact that he's blessed my table with such bounty, spilling over for more than we can even, we can even eat. He took his last drink of wine, sat back in his chair, happy and heavy, and then his heart just stopped beating. He never saw it coming, just lights out. Now, you could imagine the difference between the funeral with the dogs and the kind of fanfare and pomp and circumstance at this second man's 
funeral, such a prominent figure in the community. But, uh, but we won't be able to see that today. Because today we're attending these funerals from the point of view of the two main attractions. We are going to look at the funeral not from the spectators, not from the people who came to grieve, but from the two who've been dead. One, his first day in heaven. The other, his first day in hell. So turn with me to Luke 16. Sorry, I didn't mean to be so dramatic there at the end. <coughs> Actually, I did. <laughs> um, we're talking today about justice at the gates. Justice at the gates. And it'll become clear what that means as we, as we continue. But Luke 16, this is the third parable that Jesus has addressed now, remember, to this same crowd of scribes and Pharisees. And you remember what prompted these three parables about the prodigal son, about the unjust manager, and now about the rich man and Lazarus, the two men who died. All of it was prompted by what was said at the beginning of chapter 15. It said that the scribes and Pharisees were grumbling saying, Jesus receives tax collectors and sinners and eats with them. And so the problem the tax collectors and sinners have with Jesus is that he's too inclusive. He's, he's welcoming in too many people. If you're supposed to be the Messiah, you're supposed to establish the borders of Israel and to make it really clear who's in and who's out. And Jesus was letting all the wrong people in. So... So this, this parable is the last of a series of indictments that are intended to help these scribes and Pharisees look in the mirror and see themselves as God sees them, which was revealed in Jesus' own words about them because he is God in the flesh, telling them the truth about themselves, about him, and about, about ultimately the grace of God, which is what he's wanting them to respond to. So this parable about hell, remember, the whole purpose of it is so that none of us go there, okay? And, uh, and so let's read the parable, then we'll have a lot to unpack. So beginning in verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, when you read that, don't think, oh, that was nice of the dogs to come and clean him up. (laughs) Think of vultures. Think of the, the scavengers that come around when they smell death is near. That's the image. So he, he, he was longing for the crumbs that fell off the rich man's table, kind of like, kinda like the, uh, the, the prodigal son who was longing for the pods that the pigs were eating. And you, can almost, you almost get the sense that Luke wants us to fi- finish the sentence as he did in chapter 15. He was longing for the crumbs that fell off the table, but nobody gave him anything. And so all he got was dogs licking his sores. The poor man, though, died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, is the word, in his bosom. 
The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, or hell, uh, when you see the word hell in your Bible, it could be one of two words, Gehenna and Hades. Hades refers to a general notion of the place of the dead, like what you read in the Old Testament, Sheol. And then Gehenna refers to what we think of as pure flames. Well, in this case, it's Hades because there's a dialogue, and you can't talk when you're on fire, so... Uh, but not to make light of it, but, but the, the imagery here is intended then to set up the stage for this dialogue that we hear. But it says this, in Haiti, uh, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom is what it literally says. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. And, uh, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send, him to, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Jesus said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The word of God. Okay, so here's where we're going, okay? Which rich guy, which poor guy, and then naturally, six things in hell that ought to be in the church, all right? So, okay, there we go. Which rich guy? Um, notice in verse 19 and 20, uh, and by the way, the reason we're doing, the reason I'm framing it up like this is because this is one of those parables, just like the last two, it's a crisis parable. Jesus is calling the people he's talking to into crisis, into a decision. They're coming to a crossroads. It's like when the prophet Nathan went to David and he created this whole story about this king who had unjustly basically raped a woman and murdered his soldier. And then the, David said, how horrible, where is this man? And then he says, you are the man, remember? He made the parable about him. And so what Jesus is doing is he's creating these parables about these Pharisees and in every six ways to Sunday, is that what they say? He's telling them, you are the man. You're the guilty ones. You're the ones, everybody else knows they're guilty. You're the last ones who aren't admitting it. And so he's trying to expose the nature of their sin because they're so blind to it. They, they've gotten so used to comparing their outer righteousness to everybody else's outer sinfulness. But they have wicked hearts. They have cold hearts. They have compassionless hearts. They are lawless in their hearts, as Jesus says in Matthew 23. And because of that lawlessness, their love grows cold, he says. That's the problem of this, of the Pharisees and the scribes and their hypocrisy. And so the reason we want to know which rich guy, who's he talking about, is because 
We want to know if he's saying to us, you are the man. You are the woman. We want to know how this applies to us, right? Right? Do you want to? Yeah, I do. I do. So, okay. So verse 19 and 20, he begins and, and he tells us there's a rich man who's clothed in purple, fine linen, feasted sumptuously every day and at his gate. That's how it begins. So what do we know then about this man? Well, we know he's rich. We, we have a profile of a man. So then the question we need to ask if we're being confronted is, do we fit the profile? So consider the rich man's profile. He wears purple and linen. He eats whatever he wants, and he has a gait. So basically, he wears whatever he wants, he eats whatever he wants, and he has a piece of property. Now, does that sound like any person you know? Sounds like me. Probably sounds like a lot of you. This, this rich man, he, he lives above the poverty line, okay? Uh, he doesn't seem to be that rich. Now, now, granted, I can give you a different interpretation to make it easy on you if you want, if you don't want to be challenged today, because I think there is another way of looking at it. But before I tell you that this probably is a reference to the priesthood, don't use that as an escape clause, Okay? Don't use that in the way the Pharisees would have and said, oh, this doesn't apply to me, right? So he, he, he is painting a picture of someone who has basically whatever they want in life. He's basically describing us. You know, I could order a purple robe off Amazon right now and it'll be here this evening, okay? I can wear whatever I want. I can eat whatever I want and I've got some property. And so... And so let's keep in mind that when it comes to considering justice between rich and poor, for Americans, if you zoom the camera lens back, comparing us to the rest of the world, we're up there in the top 1% of the world, okay? And so, so let's not try to escape the, the confrontation of this, of this parable. And so... This is, the, uh, this is the rich man. But I do think that the, the image of the purple robe is intended to, to point us to, first of all, scribes and Pharisees were known to wear purple, but it was the prescribed color of the priest in, in the book of Leviticus. They had to wear purple. And so there is this, I think, layering of identification that you could just see this as a rich man, but it's probably a critique against the, the priesthood as well. And, the, and remember, the priests are the ones who, the priests were essentially, effectively judges for Israel. And where that judgment would happen, now this is key, where that judgment would happen typically in civil disputes was at the gates of the community. At the gates. It's what you heard in the scripture reading from Amos where God is sending his indictment on his people because they did not establish justice in the gates and the idea of justice in the gates is this, it's, it became a kind of metaphor that, that whatever happens outside the gates of the, the people's community, the Jewish community, it may be unjust, it may be sinful, but what happens in the gates is different because you're my people and you act different. You live different. You love different. So there has to be justice in the gates because if there's not justice in the gates of Israel and in the communities of Israel, how can the nations be 
how can Israel bear witness to the nations of a different God and a different way of life? So that's the idea of the gates. As one commentator put it, that judicial decisions for each community were taken at the gate of the city where the heads of families and other elders assembled to hear witnesses arbitrate disputes, decide controversies, and generally dispense justice. The space on the inner side of the gate, together with rooms or alcoves in the gate area itself, were used as courtrooms. Okay, so this parable, remember what, where the intersection of the rich man and the poor man in this world, where that intersection took place, where was it? It was at his gate. And so Jesus is pointing us to some injustice that happened at the gate, at the gate. And so, and what it turns out, the, the, the reason this matters is because what he's trying to say is, look, the measure of justice that you dole out in this life for the people who are laid at the gate of your life will be reflected in the kind of mercy or judgment you receive in the next. It does matter how you treat people. It does matter. It's like what James says, that mercy triumphs over judgment, but those who are without mercy will be without mercy in the judgment. Paraphrase, but that's what it means. That, that, that the mercy that we extend to others who are at the gate in our life will have a bearing on the kind of mercy we receive in the next. And yes, righteousness by faith. Yes, the sinner's prayer, all of that. But Jesus is keeping us from the deceptions of, of the kind of easy believism and nominal Christianity that creates, I pray to prayer once Christians and actually don't continue to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ and the grace of Jesus Christ for the rest of their lives. And so, uh, and so this is the... This is the rich guy. Okay. Um, and then, uh, let's see. Oh, I got ahead of myself here. Okay. And then, then the question is, well, which poor guy? Which poor guy are we talking about? Well, the easy thing is, in this parable, one of the few parables, we're actually told the name of the poor guy. And, and his name is Lazarus. Now, the question I have is, which Lazarus? Which Lazarus? Because there are, there are a number of potential candidates for who he's talking about. And this actually gets into, uh, actually, we'll get, we'll get to that in a minute. So, the, the, the options for which Lazarus this is was just some random guy named Lazarus, which is possible because Lazarus was the third most popular name in the first century, it turns out. It could be, remember the other guy, Lazarus, what happened to him? John 11? Yeah, he died and Jesus resuscitated him or raised him from the dead. I don't know if he had to die again. I guess that would just be a resuscitation if so. <laughs> so it could be him or it could be a figure that goes way back earlier into Israel's history. But uh, you'll have to wait till the end uh, if you want to find that out because we're not going to get there till the end. Okay. So, um, so, which poor guy? It's Lazarus, and we'll get to which Lazarus at the end. All right, and now, then, um, six things in hell that ought to be in the church. Six things in hell that ought to be in the church. Now, I have to tell you, this awkward and stark transition, it actually comes from my grandfather's sermon on this passage. So, if you're offended by it, that's just the way he was. It wasn't, it's not the way I am. 
But, uh, <laughs> but, but it, it, it's actually a wonderful sermon. I feel like if I have the right to steal any man's sermon, it's my late grandfather. So, uh, of course, I've adapted it a little bit. But, but I do want to talk about what he noticed in this parable, which is the things that show up in the rich man's life a moment too late. And they're all things that Jesus wants to show up in all of our lives before it's too late. And so that's the idea. Six things in hell that ought to be in the church. And the first one is a recognition of hell. Now, uh, notice the stark contrast in verse 22. Uh, verse, verse 22 and 23 when it says that the rich man, he also died and was buried. Right? Because it, does, it doesn't matter what kind of life that you live or kind of death that you die. At the end of the day, the rich man and the poor man all end up in the same place. Right? They end up dead. And the, dead, the rich man died and it says he was buried. And then the stark awakening. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. So one man was carried the other buried. One man carried by the angels into heaven, the other buried, and, and there's no obituary, no eulogy, no last rites or celebration of life or graveside hymns. He simply takes his last breath and then wakes up in Hades, being in torment. Now, of course, it raised, this raises all kinds of questions. Uh, like the difference between Gehenna and Hades and whether this is literal or figurative. And it really does all come back to one question, which is, is this a parable or is this a story about something that actually happened? In other words, is this a meta story, like Jesus' parables, intended to have some kind of universal applicability to all of us or is it, is it so in a sequence of parables similar, similarly uh, directed to these Pharisees? Or is it a literal story somewhat awkwardly placed in Luke's gospel about a conversation that we are given privy, to, uh, we're given inside eavesdrop rights to so we can hear two dead guys talking? And one of those dead guys is in the bosom of another dead guy. This is so exceptional to all the other descriptions of heaven and hell that we have that I, I'm convinced that it's a parable. But let me be quick to say this. That doesn't make it any less a warning. It doesn't make it any less weighty. I imagine that if Jesus is going to tell us anything about Hell, it will be commensurate to what he says about heaven in that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love, them, lo love him. Who says that we are being prepared for an eternal weight of glory compared to which our present sufferings aren't even, they're not even worth being compared. And so I imagine in those cases, he's trying to communicate something that's without precedent in the human experience. And so when Jesus pulls language from the most extreme imagery that he could possibly conjure up in relation to the human experience of pain and suffering, then we should probably take that as a cue to take this seriously and to know that it refers to something. 
And it refers to something without precedent in the human experience and, and something that should be absolutely dreadful to us. But also we have to know the whole reason he's telling us, like I said earlier, is so he can keep us from going there, wherever there is or what it is. So, so it, I don't think it matters where you land on, is it literal flames, is it eternal separation? I, I, I don't know exactly how to explain that. And anyone who is too sure about it, they're probably just too sure of themselves, okay? But what I do know is that Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else, and it definitely refers to something. And your life, in this life, the decisions you make and how you respond to him, how, what's going on in your heart toward God, that matters forever. That's what matters. That's what Jesus is trying to say. It matters. And it matters with some serious gravity. So, so we need to have some kind of recognition of hell because if we don't, how is the world going to? You see, a recognition of hell has to be in the, has to be in the church. Otherwise, who's going to warn the world about it? And yes, this can be done wrongly. Yes, this can be done without compassion. Yes, this can be done by beating people over the head with repent or burn. Yes, it can be done. But there can be just as much damage done by our silent indifference to a lost world. Right? And so we, ha we have to, I don't like preaching about hell. Right? But it's not about us. It's about what has God said? What is the full counsel of scripture say about our lives and how our lives are framed. Our lives are not from simply dust to dust. We are, our body returns to the ground and the soul returns to the God who gave it. Every one of us is, is living this life because a person created us and that same person will meet us when we die. And so there has to be a, a recognition of hell. And then of course, and more importantly, there has to be a vision of heaven. Notice what it says in verse 24. Uh, it says that in 30, 30, uh, 23, sorry, it says that being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom, and he called out Father Abraham. So the, finally this rich man gets a vision of heaven. But again, it's too late. He finally, though, discovers the source of, of his life, the source of his soul's longing. It almost sounds like you're reading a psalm, like Psalm 42, when he's, he's, he's calling out and he's, he's asking for some, someone to dip, for Lazarus to dip his finger in water that it might cool my tongue. It's like he's, he's recognized finally what the psalmist recognizes as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O oh God, the living God. But it has been clouded through a life of greed and lust of the flesh and of the eyes and the pride of life. And that longing of his soul was muted, distracted, numbed. And now he's awoken to it. It's too late. It's too late. You see, this is why the church not only needs a recognition of hell, but a vision of heaven to give to the Pharisees and the Lazaruses alike to the rich men and the poor men alike, a vision of heaven as Christ described it. Yes, it is about all 
accounts being brought to justice in the end. But more importantly for us in the here and now, it's about there being a people who would follow him to see heaven break into earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the church has a vision of heaven on earth, and that determines the way we live our life. That determines how we see the world and how we see people who are begging at the gate, how we see people who we would otherwise judge or cast out. You see, Jesus taught us to pray this reality so that we could see it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the rich man's vision of heaven had something in common with a lot of, I'm sorry, Christians' vision of heaven now. Namely, it was a vision of heaven that only had to do with life hereafter. Life after death. Life in heaven, not on earth. But the church is the people that carries forth Christ's vision of heaven on earth. So that it compels us and it convicts us not to pass by the people at our gates. Not to pass by the people who are in need in our lives, but to stop like the Good Samaritan. To stop, to close the gap between them and me and all my resources and all their needs. To close that gap and and to, to enter a suffering world, even if it means getting our purple robes dirty. Right? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. He crossed the gap. He closed the distance to reconcile the relationship. He left his throne in heaven, entered into our suffering, and that was the beginning of heaven's invasion on earth, which did not look like God's people having the storehouses of heaven opened up so that they could enjoy their material wealth and prosperity. It looked like a bunch of people, especially that early church, who Follow Jesus' way of life, crossing ethnic boundaries, racial boundaries, social boundaries, political boundaries, economic boundaries, because Jesus had crossed the greatest boundary of all, and they knew it. And they knew they were witnesses of it. And so, so that crossing of boundary became inherent to the witness that we're not going to be a people that divide politically, ethnically, racially, or whatever, because we gather in the name of Jesus. And in a sure sign of the inbreaking of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven is, is when and where the church carries that vision in such a way that it, that it comes out in radical demonstrations of reconciliation, of love, of forgiveness. When the vision of, uh, of, of God becomes like the dream of Martin Luther King that one day the sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. That's the world on earth as it is in heaven where there are no superficial, artificial divisions dividing the human family because Christ has made us one in him. And, and this, is, this is precisely the vision of the heaven, though, that the rich man rejects. Remember how it all began. It was because of who Jesus was receiving and eating with, right? So, uh, and so, but if you reject that vision of heaven, the kind of heaven that gets his hands dirty, the kind of heaven that Jesus demonstrated, 
that, that looks like service and sacrifice in this life for those on the road to heaven, if you reject that vision of heaven, there, there is no other vision on offer. And that's what the rich man had to find out the hard way. And so uh, third in, hev- in hell that ought to be in the church, a cry for mercy. A cry for mercy. Notice what it says in verse 24. He lifted up his eyes, saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus in his bosom, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. There's a cry for mercy in hell. But it's too late. That's why the church has to be the place, the first place where we show the world how and why to cry for mercy. You see, the rich man cried for mercy because of his punishment, because of his pain. The church cries for mercy because of our sin. The rich man cried for mercy because of the prospect of hell and the hereafter. We cry for mercy because of a recognition of our soiling and sinning of God's good, beautiful, just, holy, perfect world. And that's what calls us to ask for mercy. Because we realize that death has a cause in its sin. And, 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 and to cry for mercy from the consequence doesn't get to the root of the problem. The church teaches the world, gives the language to the world, gives permission to the world to be a people who need mercy. That's why we have to stake our foundation on the grace of God. Because anything else, if we stake it on anything else, we will push people away who need mercy the most. We are ambassadors of the grace of God, of the mercy of God. So our job is like David to teach the world to pray Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That's how we pray for mercy. It's because of our sin, because of we, we have added selfishness to a, a world made for perfect love. We have not loved our wives and our husbands and our kids and our families and our neighbors in the way Christ would, in the way that we will all one day when Jesus comes back and creates a whole new type of neighborhood and society and new creation. And so this, uh, this cry for mercy is, it, it can become Our need for mercy can be clouded to the degree our wealth gives us this deception of self-reliance. It's hard for the rich man to see that he needs mercy. It's like what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. Laodicea, he says, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are blind and pitiable, wretched and poor. You see, it can blind your wealth or our wealth, our wealth can blind us to our spiritual poverty or just distract us from it. Because if we sit in silence long enough, we'll see it. But it can distract us from it. And, uh, and, and, and God is trying to bring us to see it. Again, he's trying to bring the Pharisees in, not push them out. He's not doing what they did, which was shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. He's trying to bring them in. I mean, he tells them in just the next chapter, two chapters later, he tells them the story of the Pharisee and the public and the sinner, and and he tells them this seven-word prayer. It's all you need to enter the kingdom. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee, thank God I'm not like this sinner. 
One went away justified, the one who prayed for mercy. The other went away without justification, the one who tried to do it on his own basis, his own righteousness. And Jesus is trying to say, all you got to do is give up, let go, confess your need for salvation, for grace, for mercy, so that you can stop propagating that sinful way of life that looks righteous on the outside but is cold, heartless, and loveless in relationships and in, on the inside. And so, uh, and so a cry for mercy. All right. Number four. We're going to get there, guys. All right. Number four. Somebody else's justice will be in hell. Remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees in verse 15? He said, you are those who justify yourselves. You see, that the, the rich man has been living his whole life in his own courtroom of God's justice. And, and in that courtroom, he was, had been able to justify his way of life before men. He, he has been able to just to excuse himself for all the reasons he didn't stop at that rich man who was at the gate. Well, according to Leviticus 17 or whatever, he's unclean, so don't need to. And um, I'm busy. I've got to get to the, t- it's the day of atonement. I can't be late for that. So, and all these reasons that have piled up over and over that has convinced him that he is justified before God as a man who walks by this man in great need day after day after day. Now he's in the presence of someone else's justice. And those arguments don't matter anymore. I mean, you can, we can tell ourselves that we're right, that we're good, that we, we are true, till we're blue in the face. But those, those arguments don't matter in the presence of the judge. Someone else's justice will determine our destiny. And, and it's, like when my, uh, it's like when my kids are arguing over seating arrangements in the car. Uh, and so I will invariably step in the middle of their baseless, godless arguments and veto whoever called shotgun and then proceed to give them seating assignments by fiat because I'm an evil dictator because that's the way it is, you know. <laughs> but, but they need to know that their arguments with each other don't matter when they're in the presence of their father. And why is that? Because they can't keep track of who's got to sit in the front seat over the past seven years or whatever. I have at least a better sense of the scope of the whole of their lives and what's actually fair. And so I reserve the right to, to, to bring them into my justice because it, it sees the bigger picture. And so that's, only God, though, can be truly just because only he can see the biggest of the big picture. Everything from our lives beginning to end, inside and out, he's the only one who can establish justice for us. So, uh, and then within this context of of someone else's justice, notice that it says that, uh, notice Abraham's response in verse 25 it's twofold. He says to the rich man, child, there's compassion in his voice, right? Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. And in Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. He's comforted here now and you in anguish. Notice he didn't just say, remember you received good things and some people didn't receive good things. He said, remember you received bad things and, and, and other people, uh, you receive good things, and Lazarus, 
received bad things. It wasn't just neglect, it was bad things. And this is something we all have to remember. First of all, yes, remember all the good things you've received. If you forget that, you'll become ungrateful and ingratitude is the root behind every sin, I'm convinced. That's what Paul says in Romans 1, I think. But, but yeah, so remember that you've received a lot of good things. But don't forget that other people, it's not that they just haven't received the good things you've received. Some people have received hell on earth. You go in a vision of hell, you just have to look at some people's lives. And, and it's the church's job to recognize that, that we don't all start with a clean slate here. All right, and, and it's not like we all have, thank God, our legal system, we have equal opportunity, but we don't all have equal opportunities. It depends on what you were born into. I met a girl once from the trailer park down the road. We got a phone call to come do an exorcism, first one of those that I had, but moved to Washington, it's the kind of thing you expect, right? <clears throat> Go over there with Joel and Ann Adamson, they were like, we don't know why we have these demons in our house. And I was like, well, can we look around your house? They have a giant Buddha statue like this, our Hindu God statue like this. So we threw it away. But anyway, this lady came to visit me, I don't know, a few weeks later. It wasn't even her house. It wasn't even the person who contacted us. She came to visit me. And uh, she said that she, she felt like when I came over there, she needed to tell me what her story what had happened to her, which she hadn't told anyone. And um, she told me about her mom, who was a witch, who had uh, put a curse on her. And, and put a curse on her in like the way we put blessings on our kids, like a formal curse. Cursed her, and she believed she was under a curse. Then she had me pull up a police report of, her, uh, 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 of something that happened in her childhood. She wanted me to really believe what she was about to tell me. And what it revealed was that she had, when she was a toddler, been brought to the hospital with 34 broken bones. And the officers reported her repeatedly holding her breath until she would pass out. The sense was this toddler didn't want to live anymore because life was too much bad things. Remember that you've received good things and other people have received a lot of bad things. And, and that has to change the way you, by default, look at people, see people, judge people. You don't know what people have suffered. Those people laying on the streets under an overpass, you don't know what, le- don't think, don't be so deluded to think that they just ended up there because they had made a few bad decisions and, oop, we just landed on the sidewalk. Sure, bad decisions are involved. But a lot of bad things happen to people. And, and, and for those of us who've been spared of the worst, we have only to be grateful. And, and to never forget, never forget uh, where we come from. So that as we begin to see the good things we constantly are receiving, that we will see them as potential resources to give and to share to all those who are receiving bad things in this life. We have to see our wealth as a burden and responsibility if we're going to be faithful to Jesus Christ. A burden because we know we need to share it and we know there's a whole world who needs us to, right? And so, and it's a responsibility because to those who are given much, much is required, as Jesus says.
And then the second thing he says, the second thing he says, the first is about remembering the conditions of his past life. You receive good things, he bad. Second is about recognizing the conditions of his present life. And besides this, Abraham says, oh, my child, I, I wish you could, but this is justice. You received, you received good things. You didn't share them. This is justice. But not, not only that, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that all those who would pass by from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. You see, the, the rich man is experiencing in hell what this poor man experienced every day of his life. It was as though a great chasm had been fixed between him and others. Those who, who, who could possibly help him, but the chasm was too great. People wouldn't cross because it, it required them to be driven across it by their love. And this rich man certainly had none. It's like the two Haitians I met. I told you about the cruise that I went on about a month or two ago. And I met a couple of Haitians. We went to, the isle, or we went to the, a private beach in Haiti called Labadee. And I was talking to two of the workers there. And I was telling them, wow, I didn't know Haiti was so beautiful. They're probably thinking, well, you haven't really seen Haiti, right? But, but what they said was, one of them said, that's right. You guys can come here all the time. Americans come here all the time. But we can never go there. It's like a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. Or like the man my kids and I stopped and prayed for the other night at Winko, we got a sandwich for him and I asked him if I could pray for him and he stood up like he was surprised. He stood up and he said, yes, please. I said, what can I pray for you? He said, can you pray for my parents? Said, Absolutely, what can, I pray for? what can I pray about? He said, they're dead. It's like a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. You see, the church is the people who represent the justice of God by crossing those chasms as a witness of the God who crossed the chasm from heaven to earth to, to enter into our suffering and to bring us into fellowship with him, into the family of God. And and and. This, this is the mission of the church to bring the hope of Christ to a suffering world. But Because if we don't cross those chasms that divide the world in this life, those chasms become immortalized in the next. That's what he's warning the Pharisees he's talking to and the rich people in here that he's talking to. That if we allow those chasms to exist between us and the needy world, that may represent the very chasm that we're faced in the next. Okay, all right. A burden for the lost. A burden for the lost. Verse 27, he said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. See, now he cares. Big brother, you know, responsible for his, his siblings. Now he cares. But it's too late. It's too late. He, he wants him to send Lazarus, but, but Jesus, you have to understand, Jesus was the one who was sent from the Father as, as God's burden for the lost, this rich man and all his brothers. Jesus was the one who was sent. And he's telling them to their face, I've already been sent. Here's the warning. It's not too late if you heed my word right now. 
And, and you see, this, this, bur- this is the burden for the lost has to exist in the church or we will forget who we are. We are the people who are found by Jesus and nothing else. If we don't begin there, that is Jesus' mission. As he says in chapter 19, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so, and so if we forget that we're the people who have been lost, then of course our burden for the lost will go away. But do you remember what it's like to be lost? To have no hope and without God in the world, as Paul describes it in Ephesians 2. You see, the burden that God has for the lost is revealed in Jesus And he shares that burden with his church. It's like in Matthew 9 when it says he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, helpless and hopeless. You see, there is no rest for the eyes of God watching a lost world. It is an act of mercy that we don't see every single human being as he sees them because we would just melt in grief and sorrow over a lost world. But the more you allow God's heart to transform yours, the bigger your vision for the lost will get. And I tell you, that's a heavy burden to carry. But it's for Jesus to carry. He gives it to you so you can give it back. And then just love people in Jesus' name. It's that simple. A burden for the lost is needed in the church. All right. And then, then, lastly, the word of God. The word of God. Notice what he says. He says in verse 29 that the, the, the protest that Lazarus made or the rich man makes is if they will sit, go and, and tell Lazarus to do this because if Lazarus is raised from the dead, surely they'd believe, right? And Jesus says if they don't hear the word of Moses and the prophets, the word of God, the Bible he's talking about, then they won't even believe if a man's raised from the dead. Now this gets to the identity of Lazarus, okay? Lazarus. Because the, the, the image here is of uh, is the, the rich guy. He's, he's, asking, he's asking Lazarus, or he's asking Abraham to get Lazarus to do something for him. And the sense is that there's one thing that actually isn't in hell that shouldn't be in the church also. Or that should be in the church. Sorry, there's one thing that isn't in hell that should be in the church. Namely, repentance. This rich man never repents. Do you notice how he's talking about Lazarus? Send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and come serve me. Send Lazarus to go warn my brothers. He thinks he's still in charge, doesn't he? And it's not only that. I think it's because of who Lazarus really represents. Now, it could be one of two things, I think. It may be a, layer, a double-layered thing. Maybe if he's talking to people who knew about or were there when he raised Lazarus from the dead, maybe he's saying, hey, guys, I already did raise a guy from the dead. You all saw it, and you're still trying to kill me, right? So that could be it, and maybe it is. But I think it has to do with this name, Lazarus. And his vision of heaven, who would, I mean, when have you ever had a vision of heaven? Oh, I can't wait till I die and I get gathered up into Abraham's bosom. That's not your vision of heaven. And it's a peculiar vision of heaven anyway. Do you know whose vision of heaven it would have been? 
it would have been the vision of heaven by a little servant boy that you would have only really heard of in Genesis 15. And it's at one of the most important points in all the Bible because Abraham looks at his situation and he, he sees that he doesn't have a descendant. He doesn't have a son. God has promised him to have many descendants, a great nation. And he says, how will I have a great nation without a son? My servant, Eliezer of Damascus, will be my heir. Eliezer of Damascus. You know what that means in Greek? That name in Greek, you know what that is? I don't have a son. Lazarus of Damascus will be my heir. You see, what I think Jesus is doing is actually saying, Pharisees and scribes, it's worse than you think. You know, I'm welcoming in these sinners and tax collectors, all these Jewish people that have defected and, and have been unfaithful. It's worse than you think. Because Lazarus of Damascus, the people who are not part of the covenant, the Gentile world, they're also welcome to the table. They are also welcome to the table. And so, yes, Lazarus of Damascus will be gathered up into Abraham's bosom. What that means is the Gentiles are being included in the family of God. The bosom of Abraham represents all the descendants, all the promise of God that will be born from him. What he's saying is, Jesus is saying is, look, I'm doing something bigger than just Abraham here. This goes back to Adam and before Adam to the one who created Adam. I'm making a worldwide family. And, 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 and Lazarus represents all those lost beyond Damascus as Amos 5 ends with. That he says, if you don't establish justice in the gates, I'll gather them from beyond Damascus. That's begun in Jesus. Because the reality is God has sent his own son to the gate of this world. And you know what it says in the book of Hebrews about God sending his son to the gate of this world? It says this, and this will prepare us for our time together at the Lord's table. It says that we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So listen, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Let us go to him outside the gate and bear the reproach he endured. In other words, Jesus wasn't allowed to establish justice in the gates. So you know where he established justice? Outside the gates and sanctified the world. So that all Jews, all Gentiles, all tribes, all tongues, all nations could come to him and let the justice of God be put on him instead of you, instead of us. And then you can cry mercy to God because all the mercy of God comes through the funnel of Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, but we have been given this name. You have been called to salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of the Lord's favor. So as we prepare to come to the table, I would just remind you that the Lord's Supper is a, is a word picture of the gospel. 
The Apostle Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what that means for all of you, maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you've never prayed that seven-word prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. You can do that right now. You can do that in your heart right now. In response to the gospel, if God has burned something in your heart, if God is speaking to you, convicting you, you can say, God, be merciful. God, be merciful to me now before it's too late because he wants you. He's not trying to keep you out. He's done everything he can to bring you in to his kingdom. And so we, we proclaim the Lord's death by offering this table. And that means everyone is invited if you come to the table in faith. This is an invitation to respond in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Eat this and do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and after he'd given thanks, he blessed it. And he said, this is a cup of the new covenant. Only God can establish new covenants. (laughs) He came to establish a new covenant, a covenant of grace. So who's qualified to enter this covenant? Everyone who needs grace. That means all y'all are qualified because we're all sinners. And that's the good news of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. There is none who are disqualified, unqualified, as long as you recognize who you are and what your need is. Call out for mercy. And you can do it now. You can do it by responding to this invitation to come to the table and eat the bread and drink the juice in faith as a response to the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, would you fill us with your spirit of conviction so that we might fear you appropriately, but then to be freed from fear as perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, as your word says, and those who fear have not been perfected in love. Perfect us in love today. Give us a vision of of heaven with you at the center of it, and help us to live just lives, righteous lives, under your lordship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come to the table. Just a reminder, you're all invited to the uh, potluck, and because it's a potluck, nobody knows that you didn't bring anything. So, wonderful. Bring something next time. Please come, and uh, as you go, I'll just I'll finish that passage from Hebrews 13 for all of our benediction. It says, Let us go outside the gate and bear the reproach that Jesus endured, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Bless you in Jesus' name.